start with what drives value and then let's go after the things that matter versus yeah. trying to boil the ocean and go after everything. It's less about renegotiating your rates. It's, it's more about looking for ways to be more creative and reroute and recycle and, and find value that way. Welcome to The Next Imperative, a podcast hosted by A&M Energy Leaders, tackling key issues and trends in the industry. Welcome back to The Next Imperative. I'm Jeff Angulo, your host and moderator. On this episode, we're going to continue our Integrated Oil Company series with a discussion about international business unit transformation. Joining me in this discussion are energy industry thought leaders, Renee Klimzak, Nick Carnwright, and Riyad Nasser. Riyad, Nick, Renee, welcome to the next imperative. Thanks, Jeff. Well, let's jump in. On the last episode, we talked about how the energy industry landscape's been shifting under consolidation, the need to grow supply, uh, lackluster exploration performance in recent years, and portfolio optimization. In your view, how can the IOCs effectively navigate through these waters and create value given their global footprints? Riyad, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind, particularly when I think about, you know, the sort of need for consolidation is that the, the IOCs have, you know, the benefit of a sort of significant balance sheet as well as um, a number of operating assets around the world. So, you know, they really have the option to, um, to optimize their portfolio by looking for assets that have long-term strategic value and benefit for them and maybe invest either for organic growth or inorganic growth, you know, whatever it is. Um, conversely, they may look for assets to, to get out of and to create some cash flow and, and to move out from, you know, maybe it's a marginal well environment, maybe it's a, a sort of a high regulatory complexity environment, whatever, whatever it is. So portfolio optimization is one of the first things that comes to mind across the portfolio. And then, you know, within business units, there may be opportunities to um, you know, make improvements uh, and whether they're going to sell or whether they're going to hold or whether they're going to grow, those opportunities are there. And it's, it's typically around, you know, capital efficiency and, and base business as well and, and looking for ways to create value within the business unit. So, you know, a lot of the smaller companies may be, you know, sort of all in in one particular base and some of the large independents, but um, the IOCs really have a lot more to, to work with. And just to add to that, the portfolio piece has gotten a lot more complex. Like you have new energy businesses and a lot of these companies and how, how far do you lean into those investments, right? Um, we've seen some of the European IOCs as an example, take kind of a divergent path from what we've seen the US uh, IOCs do. Um, and then maybe a bit of a change of direction back the other direction now. Um, but if you think about it, what's an IOC trying to do? It's generate returns, generate cash flow and make sure that they have a sustainable business. But how you allocate capital and prioritize your efforts amongst those three priorities isn't simple, mm. right? Um, but kind of keeping the pressure on cost, on margin, on value, um, versus going back to chasing growth, whether that's in electrons or barrels, is easier said than done. But I think so far we're doing a decent job at it as an industry. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, um, you know, there's no real footprint for exactly how this should track and the ability to be nimble and to recognize when you maybe your strategic direction isn't quite right and to redirect and, and you know, correct course uh, or course correct. 
um, is really important to do. So I think more of that, you know, we'll be looking for more of that um, rather than less. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, traditionally, it, it's the future's been a little clearer in terms of the products and and you know, gas versus oil, et cetera. Um, now with renewables entering and the whole transition, it's just a lot less certain. Great. Renee, how well have the IOCs managed portfolio optimization? How frequently do they look to make those decisions? Usually there is some type of cadence and more, you know, say more annually to revisit the portfolio. But, you know, linking back to a question we talked about earlier around the, the strategies and the ability to be nimble and adjust and course correct, I think even more important that they, you know, that you revisit the um, portfolios often and also have a clear process so that you do it consistently, you have criteria you're looking against and always be driven by value um, and be willing to make the hard decisions when it's time to divest. I think in the past what I've observed and having worked in a lot of these um, IOCs is there has been a reluctance possibly there's more of a reward for acquiring and people feel less confident about divesting, but you know, clearly that has a role to play as well. So managing that actively is going to be critical. Absolutely. There was a period there where it seemed like we were kind of hoarders as an industry yeah. where we didn't want to give up anything because we might need it one day. Mm-hmm. And then I think we kind of got over that, went through an active divestment cycle, got rid of a lot of assets that didn't compete for capital as an industry, which was healthy. Um, but now everyone's starting to worry about returns are still in focus, but we're also worrying about resource life. And like, where's the growth going to come from over the medium term, mm-hmm. especially as hydrocarbon demand doesn't appear to be going anywhere. Um, so we'll see if some of these companies now like get back into that mentality of like, we need more in the cupboard versus this divestment process that we've been on for the last few years. So I think it is a bit of a, a shifting tide here. Yeah, I think um, taking a returns focused view sort of across the portfolio is, is where everybody needs to be. I mean, even even making returns focused decisions within a business unit is, is something that, you know, the entire industry isn't totally bought off on. I think that some folks are still you know, have, you know, production and, and I and EUR in mind. I think that that's something that they've been moving away from and, and progressing out of. Um, but maybe there's still a little bit of room to go there. But, you know, making returns focused decision on, on capital dollars and thinking about it in terms of, well, you know, what's my capital spend? What's my forecasted OPEX to support that? You know, what's my sort of takeaway costs around GPT, et cetera? And then what kind of production am I intend to, intending to get out and over what time period? Because you know, production on the long term isn't what we're trying to optimize for either. So, I mean, all of those things should really come together. Right. Nick, thinking strategically, what have you seen the IOCs do in terms of what are the considerations they're facing when they're trying to decide, am I going to core up or am I going to go more on a divestment strategy? How have they been thinking about it? That's a good question. I think, I think what you're trying to do is create optionality. Where like if you divest that business, if you core up around that business, or you just operate that business, either way you're trying to maximize margins, maximize returns. Um, so you're creating optionality for yourself by running it as efficiently as you can. Um, so I guess before you kind of get into that buy versus sell decision, it's just how do we get the most out of this asset? Which is what we see most of our IOC clients focused on is margin enhancement. Five years ago, cost was in focus. Now it's margin per barrel. 
margin per BOE. And that's all in margin, F&D costs, development costs, um, as well as operating costs and G&A. Um, so regardless of what you want to do with the asset long term, let's maximize value now. And if you sell it, great, you get a better price for it. If you don't sell it, great, it's a better performing asset that might now compete for capital within your portfolio. Um, so we see clients kind of taking the long game of regardless of your long term plan for it, let's maximize value now. I like it. The next question, really want to look at it in two parts. It's what are the levers IOC should be considering when looking to drive value? First, in a divestment, and then second, you know, in a growth strategy or growth scenario. Riyad, sure. you want to start us off? Yeah. Um, well, if you think about a divestment, you, you've got a sort of shorter time window to make an impact. Uh, so you're going to focus your, your improvements and your levers on, on rapid uh, improvements. And there's a big cost reduction component of that where, you know, you're basically starting off with some you know, cost assessment or benchmarkings uh, you know, around the major cost categories against peers. And then you know, you'll look for um, ways to drive value, basically stopping on some of the expenditures that you don't need to be um, you know, continuing on with, renegotiating rates. Um, even on a, from an organizational standpoint, there are some uh, full-time positions and, and some contractor positions as well that you can optimize and, and right size that are not gonna um, impact the, the business in any sort of a significant way. So there are some um, you know, uh, rapid improvements that you can do there. You can also accelerate near-term production and you can tweak your artificial lift strategy to bring production forward in the next 12, year, 12 months as opposed to trying to optimize over a longer-term program. Um, and those are, those are just a, a couple of ideas of the, the types of things that you can do. When you think about more long term and if you're going to, to, to hang on to the business unit and grow uh, and invest over time, you're definitely going to do those, those things that you would do in, in mm -hmm. a divestment, but you're also going to tackle more complex and, and long term initiatives. So you may you know, swap out or optimize your systems. You may um, you know, take some um, you know, process improvements that are a little bit more significant uh, that require you know, months and maybe even a year to sort of train up and implement. Um, Reestablishing roles and responsibilities for a particular org and bringing in automation and technology. I mean, those are more long-term changes that you might do. Um, you know, I've seen us uh, cross-train lease operators to uh, take optimization into their uh, purview. That's not something you would do if you were trying to flip a company or, or flip an asset in the six to 12 month period. But that's something that you would do if you were looking to, uh, um, to make more long-term changes. Um, you might also right-size your equipment. That's a little bit of a more sort of a painful or, or longer-term effort. Um, the, the, the list goes on. There, there's a lot there. Uh, but certainly on the divestment side, you would look for things that you could get value out of in a six-month period and then you know, take the valuation multiple on that sale. Quick wins to get the, to get the sale value. And I think you, you hit on something important, Riyadh. You said, look for ways to drive value, which step one there is what drives value in each asset, because it's different, right? Um, you have some assets where their role in life is drive cash flow. Um, you have some assets where their role in life is growth or resource life. So trying to like start there, what drives value for each asset. Um, and similarly, like not all assets are equal. Like if I'm a non-operated partner with a 40% working interest in a high tax regime, a dollar of LOE or OPEX reduction only goes so far, right? Because I apply my working interest to it, I back out the tax regime impact, 
Um, and it's a painful way to get value versus focusing on top line as an example or on your right. capital costs. Right. Um, so start with what drives value and then let's go after the things that matter versus yeah. trying to boil the ocean and go after everything. Yeah. For, for me, it's um, especially for organic growth, it's about leveraging what you have you know, to the extent possible. So debottlenecking where possible, um, perhaps upgrading existing facilities or repurposing rather than building new. I think those things are even, you know, more important than ever. And, and the other one that's in that same theme is really extending the life of existing facilities, um, really trying to, you know, invest to get the most out of them without obviously throwing good money after bad. And that's, you know, sometimes a tough call, but what we're seeing, and, and, and I think it's prudent, clients are more and more, you know, looking harder at assets that, you know, maybe toward the end of their life and what can we do better and, and different to extend that and to get more out of it. And we're seeing a lot of that in markets like UK North Sea, for instance, right now, mm -hmm. especially post EPL windfall tax, um, where operators are looking, how do we do this radically differently than we had historically? Like, right. These are late life assets that need to be run differently. I, I like the point that you made earlier about the sort of cost and 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 getting the cost versus the impact. And it, it really sort of needs to be looked at on a, on a net basis, right, to the operator. Um, because I, I just I like the example that you called out about the sort of high tax regime. I mean, they, they really need to sort of, operators really need to understand how much is this going to cost me at the end of the day and, and what value am I going to get out of it on a run, on a run rate basis and then also on a, on a valuation basis. Renee, how can the integrated oil companies effectively transform the performance of their upstream cost structures to, to increase margins? And, and this one may be for all of you easier to yeah. describe in examples of, of sure. what you've done in the past. Sure. So, you know, I think we we touched on quite a few. I mean, in particular for upstream assets, you mentioned um, you have to. I think the devil's in the details. You know, start with understanding what really drives the value and how to measure that. Come up with the metrics that you want to use and to drive that. Um, you know, to deliver the the benefits and and really stay with that through you know the process of all the changes etc so you know look for what we need to do to add more capacity or get more um, value out of what we have and so you know I think you've got to be able to to set the objectives and then to measure it and everything you do every investment you make needs to align with that so that's I'm a big proponent of those aspects and Renee, just building on that, as an industry, we're very good at setting a plan, achieving a plan, where we're a little more guarded as in what's our aspiration. Mm. Like longer term, forget about the plan, like that's our duty that we're going to deliver next year, but the aspiration of what's possible for this asset, regardless of the asset, and being willing to share what that aspiration is and then form the plan to get there. We're not so good at that part of it. We're like, we focus more on what we're gonna sign up for and what my boss is gonna hold me accountable to versus let's get the aspiration out there and figure out how to go get that target. I mean, I I, I like that. There's there's so much complexity. I mean, whether you're going after capital dollars for value or, or operating dollars uh, for, for value or even transportation, there's sort of different levers uh, to pull. I mean, capital efficiency, for instance, there's there is value, and again, depending on which strategy you're going to choose here, you know the way we think about that is, 
there's an efficiency uh, sort of lever, do it faster. Uh, there's a design lever, do it differently. And there's a commercial structure lever, which is do it cheaper. And you know, it really sort of depends on the situation, but I think you need to look at all of those things together to look for opportunities. I mean, the way we would approach something like that and, and sort of start off is, as Renee mentioned, you know, let's, let's dig into some metrics um, and see how you compare to, to other operators that are exactly where you are. Um, you know, do some normalizing to make sure that we're apples to apples and then look for the opportunities. And then really sort of get in the, the details and bring operational insights to see what's driving those gaps and, and how they can be corrected. And that's the, the, the quick and dirty uh, on the capital side. Operations may even be a little bit more complicated. The dollars aren't as big, but it, it is a little bit more complicated because there are so many different people that manage yeah. those dollars. Um, but, but ultimately it's understanding, well, you know, if you think about a sort of an LOE per BOE, right, that the costs are in the numerator, you have to understand all of those, but then you also need to understand ways to influence the denominator. So it's again, starting with benchmarks, but then moving on to understanding artificial lift mix and, and other things, um, you can begin to make recommendations on, you know, how to bring down those costs how to right size. It, it, it used to be more of a rate game. It's, I think now it's more of a volume game. If you think about you know, water, it's, it's less about renegotiating your rates. It's, it's more about looking for ways to be more creative and reroute and recycle and, and find value that way. Mm -hmm. Compression, it's not about rates anymore. It's really about right sizing and making sure you've got the right horsepower. But then when you, when you get to the denominator, it, it's really around you know, uh, finding ways to reduce downtime and, you know, kind of pull the work over lever. I mean, you've got capital dollars that you're competing with there, but um, all of that to say, there's there's a lot of complexity and there are a lot of different levers that you can pull to, to find value. There's no one surefire way to do it. Lots yeah. of opportunity and ways yeah. that I are think unique. Also, I would add, don't forget about the commercial aspects as well. It's, it is about cost and getting that right, but also, um, what we're seeing more and more of is the optimization across the commercial value chain and how to do that better. And today with the data analytics we have and, and all of the great tools at our disposal, um, it's, there's a lot more transparency throughout the value chain and understanding how what you do in one piece of the business has a flow on impact. And we're given the prices that day, um, what is the best way to run that asset um, what is the best way to, um, you know, on your commercial arrangements, if you're midstream or, you know, to buy and, and, and what type of products and the ability to be able to um, be flexible and nimble and have optionality in your mm -hmm. commercial agreements is an imperative. And, you know, that's, that's one of the other key areas, I think, in getting the most value out of your assets. Riyadh, how can these companies, how can they ensure that the, the cost transformations they put in place are sustainable mm -hmm. and that they're actually delivering long-term on the value expectations? Um, sure, um, always a challenge. Um, you know, the, the, the worst thing that could happen is if, if we get involved or if a company handles their improvements on their own, you know, when that um, improvement team leaves, everything falls apart. That's kind of worst case scenario. Um, so, you know, it's, it should be, first of all, uh, a continuous improvement process. You know, whoever intervenes uh, to make these improvements needs to also leave behind a process to make sure that, um, you know, that, that sort of continues and it is refreshed on, a, on an ongoing basis. So, so a big change management component 
not only to how you're doing it, but uh, uh, to, to ensure uh, that you keep absolutely. Re and, rethinking and, it. And really the IOCs need to sort of build that in, right, to their operating model mm -hmm. um, to continue to look for ways to improve. Because I mean, a lot of the times the improvements will come from outside, but there are so many good ideas inside the organization. They just, uh, you know, often aren't facilitated and, and sort of teed up to be implemented. Um, so putting that process in place is, is, is uh, a part of the game. Um, you know, also, and these IOCs, the way that they have um, evolved to be structured uh, is often they, they sort of organize them by asset class. Um, whether that's deep water or uh, shale and tight or, you know, sort of LNG, what have you, um, a lot of the organizations have organized their business units into those groups. And when people move around, and they often do within those organizations, they often, they, they may stay within those within those asset classes, because from a technical standpoint, there's sort of lots of um, you know, relevant skills to move from one business unit to the other. So I, I would say another sort of point is, is that you know, once you go into a business unit and you establish these, these improvements, you know, it's, it's critical to feed those you know, to that uh, asset class, which is typically a centralized organization, and make sure that it gets disseminated to the other business units, and also use that central organization to provide some accountability uh, to making sure that you know the targets are actually met, uh, you know per the per the plan. So those are just a few ideas. Just one thing I would add to that is we see cyclical margin enhancements and we see structural margin enhancements. And I would say for a lot of the last five years, there was low hanging fruit and enough to do in the cyclical bucket. The, that's where a lot of our emphasis was. So yeah. rate renegotiations, um, some changes to the way we work, but it was largely commercial in nature. Right now. That's gotten harder, frankly. Mm -hmm. We're we're having to dig deeper into stru true structural change, so changes to the way we work, changes to the way we engineer things, changes to the way we consume products and services, um, changes to the way we partner with vendors. So it's it's more comprehensive, I would say, and it's going to be stickier in yeah. terms of the value that we drive. But it's also harder, both right. for us, frankly, and for our clients. Mm -hmm. Nick, what can the IOCs learn from some of the smaller players? I think there's a lot they can learn from the independence. Um, like we've seen real life examples, right? Where an IOC divests an asset, an independent buys it, and an independent gets remarkable paybacks because they were able to run it differently than mm -hmm. the IOC was. Um, at the same time, we work with a lot of independents that frankly aren't as great operators as we see our IOC clients be. So like you have to be careful what you ask for there. Um, but I do think there are characteristics of independence that the IOCs can and probably should emulate. Um, some of those are like, let's not be a shadow operator when we're the non-operator. Mm -hmm. We can staff things differently, and that's the way an independent would do it. Um, stripping back some of the bureaucracy that began as well-intentioned programs and now have kind of gotten out of control in a lot of these companies. Um, and we've seen companies try to unwind some of that over recent years. Um, and then just the way we design things, right? Like if you look at some of these projects that were sanctioned in the mid 2000s versus how you design them today, radically different. Where back then it was, let's squeeze every last percentage point of returns out of it on paper, um, but probably gold plate it like crazy in the process of trying to do that versus now you're value engineering everything and doing it differently, which is how an independent would think about it, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have the time or the resources to even try to do it the way an IOC would have historically. Um, so those are some of the ideas, but I think maybe more fundamental than that is put decision-making in the hands of the people that are closest to the action, who have the information to make decisions versus trying to control everything centrally. 
Um, and we've seen some of the IOCs probably swing the pendulum too far where it started as some level of technical assurance, but ended up as replicate and question the decisions that are being made in the business, um, which wasn't healthy either. Right. So I think those are some of the fundamental things. Yeah. Really? So, yeah, you know, a point that, that kind of brought to mind was a company, an IOC company is not going to really have the ability to create all of these fit for purpose designs. They've got too much scale and they, they really have to kind of move to, um, you know, a shorter, uh, uh, call it number of derivative designs. Um, whereas uh, an independent, if they're more nimble, they've got less scale, they're not quite doing as much so they can afford to try things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and get out of, um, you know, break out of that, those standardized designs. I, I think in the past, standardization was, you know, the, the trend and the way to go. And, and certainly it, 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 it was useful for that time period. But since then, it's evolved. And a lot of companies are changing. Uh, and they're changing their designs right now, whether those are completion designs or even facility designs. You know, that is a large uh, source of value. Um, we find that um, that the independents are a little bit more aggressive. They can do it more quickly. They've got more appetite to take risks. Um, that's all very true. And I think the IOCs can really learn from that because they're, they're just a little bit um, you know, more at the forefront uh, of that creativity. Uh, and so you know, they can take that, you know, take it inside and uh, you know, feed it to their engineers and so on. And then they can move into those more creative solutions. So, Riyad, I want to clarify, um, you, you use standardization, but I think you might have intended to say, in my experience, the IOCs have customized, not mm-hmm. standardized. They, they've customized their solutions and their um, engineering standards. Mm-hmm. And I've been told by some of the um, oil field service companies, that's the single most costly thing in the industry, that if we as an industry could move to more standard valve sizes, right? Every valve doesn't have to be unique to a plant or to um, a company. Like if they could move, if as an industry, we could move to more standardized Mm -hmm. um, sizings, right? And consistency across countries, across the globe, um, that would be probably the single most important thing we could do to reduce costs. So that that was um, just my sure. thought as you were talking. Um, the other one that came to mind is around overheads. And, you know, we see independents obviously operating for a lot, with a lot less overhead costs. And sometimes that's the downfall of the IOCs. By the time, you know, the GNA and indirects get allocated down to an asset, it really does, um, you know, take away tremendously from the overall profitability. And I think the IOCs need to really continue, and I think they have been doing this, but they need to get a little more serious about understanding and going after what is the corporate need and support need, and, you know, what's the minimum we can we need to do to support this successfully. And I suspect there's a lot more money to be had. Um, and, and you can learn from the independents, you know, mm-hmm. what what it takes for them to um, drive these companies. And it's a whole lot less than, you know, I think what some of the, what we know, what the bigger companies um, get. And I do just want to come back to the supply chain point too. The suppliers, I think, would definitely say because companies customize, it drives costs for them and therefore for their customers, right? 
I think the other piece to that is just, frankly, a lot of these large companies are difficult to deal with, mm. whether it's terms, conditions, the number of vendors that are on an approved vendor list. Um, and those costs obviously get passed through. Right. So like you would think with the size and scale of an IOC, you would actually have preferential terms in terms of rate versus an independent. But sometimes we find that to be the complete opposite, right. that independents are willing to work with more suppliers to actually get lower rates or they're frankly just quicker and easier to deal with, so they get lower rates. Um, so that's one other element of an independent that we can probably learn from, um, that you know, IOCs are perfectly positioned, leverage the scale, you have massive amounts of it, um, but you can't only rely on scale, you also have to work with your vendors in a different way. Let me try to make a, a, a point to address the, the comments on the standardization point or the over-standardization mm -hmm. point. What I've seen sometimes with IOCs is that they have invested in a particular design um, for a decade, right? And and they put their heart and soul in, into these designs and they've worked for them in the past and they're committed. And it's a little bit difficult for them to sometimes break away and try different things um, if we're no longer optimizing for you know, production and reserve replacement and now we're, we're optimizing on returns that may require a completely different design. And, and certainly we've seen it uh, in, in recent months and the independents are just, they're just more nimble. They're, they're more willing to pivot. Um, they have uh, less of a, a reluctance to, to challenge and, and, and to question those, um, those designs that have been in place for years. That organization hasn't been around as long anyways. Um, so I think it's a little, a little bit of a handicap uh, for the IOCs. Um, but, you know, you can look at the success that the independents are having by making those pivots and then, you know, make a decision as to whether that's right, that's right for you as an organization. And then if you are going to move in that direction, those kinds of things need to be um, you know, sort of supported from the, the top down. And that's when you get some traction and, and that's when you're really able to make changes. Yeah. And, and every merger and integration that we've done, we, we ask them, you need to compare how you do things to how the seller's doing things and understand which is the best practice right. and, and adopt that going forward for your benefit. Yeah. Not everybody does it, but it's, it's a great way to, to stay in touch with what other companies are doing that you're not going to get from your own inside organization. Right. Yeah, yeah that, that proprietary data that would help um, to understand you know, um, how others are making those changes and, and you know, basically to consider different designs are, are something that we have in our peer review tool and you know, continues to be a um, a really high value asset for us and for our clients. Even learning from within an organization, like you, you see a lot of these IOCs forming asset classes now, whether that's deep water or shale and tight or LNG, whatever it might look like, where at least within a corporation, you can start to share more of those best practices across assets, benchmark against assets. Um, and it's not about, you know, trying to figure out necessarily who's doing it best, but where is their opportunity and what can we learn from one another? Um, so even within a company, I think there's a good starting point there that like, let's tear down some of the walls of I do it my way, you do it your way. And let's learn from one another and try to do it together as an asset class and even share resources across our asset classes, whether it's, you know, people or drill ships or whatever else. Yeah. It was great to take advantage of the breadth of their portfolio to do internal comparisons and, yeah. and see what's working. And yeah. like, you know, it's natural for us to focus on the opportunities, right? And what the independents are doing better than the IOCs, but nobody's better positioned than the IOCs. Like the last couple of years have shown that, like this is about scale. 
scale matters, um, especially as we embark on the transition in whatever form or shape that ends up looking like. Um, but nobody's better positioned. What about value coming from the outside, kind of beyond the industry? Have we seen any examples where, where that's been taken up by the IOCs or could be? We know that a lot of innovation comes from outside of an industry, right? If you're looking for a new solution to a problem and you look outside of the industry to somewhere, you know, that, that has solved similar um, problems, but it may be a different capacity. Um, that's where some of the best and most innovative ideas come from. Yeah, as an example, like we do see our clients working more with tech companies as an example, like partnerships with Amazon and things like that, where we are leveraging what's been done elsewhere. I do think that's new. Like mm -hmm. as an industry, we weren't open to that type of thing 10 years ago. Um, I see like through the eyes of, for instance, our infrastructure and capital projects group here, like they're bringing the same level of discipline to commercial construction projects as they are to mining projects, as they are to refinery projects, right? If it's a major capital project, we can learn from one another. So I think there is, there's more openness to it than there was, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, there's an example that came to mind um, around medical and energy. Um, there was some technology in um, you know, like imaging mm -hmm. that was transferred and leveraged for um, geoscience and for imaging, um, you know, in that capacity. And that's been very successful. So, you know, that's, that's one idea. Yeah. We do incredible things from a technology standpoint, from an operational standpoint. When it comes to back office technology, I still mm -hmm. think we're slow as an industry mm -hmm. to adopt. I don't know why, but we do incredible things from an engineering standpoint. But when it's digital solutions, we are getting there. And I think the last 10 years has made a huge improvement, um, but we're still slower than a lot of industries for whatever reason. So with a lot of recent consolidation activity, hmm. the IOCs are, are evolving and changing. How do you see them looking differently a few years from now versus today? I think if they're, you know, if they're smart, they'll leverage the acquisitions they're making of some of the more independent, smaller companies um, to learn their best practices and why they've been successful and how to incorporate that into the IOC. And at the same time, um, leverage some of their uh, efficiency at processes and procedures without getting too far into it, you know, with the, with the independence, but enough of it that they can operate better and more consistently and more efficiently. I think if they can find that balance, um, they'll both, like the whole will improve. A lot of value opportunity. There's a lot of value there. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're trying to find the middle ground, right, from the two bookends we saw historically, which were either assimilate it entirely into our culture and ways of working, or in some cases, ring fence it and leave it alone. Right. I'm not sure either one of those perfectly worked, so now we're trying to build the best in breed. Mm -hmm. I actually think Shell did a great job when they um, integrated BG Group, mm -hmm. and I was had been part of BG Group, so knew that organization well, and truly saw that they, from a people process, um, commercial approach really learned from and took the best of what BG had um, and built that into the organization rather than, you know, said, oh, we do it best, you should do it our way. Chevron has steel has some interesting dynamics as well. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is not just the Chevron way across the Hess assets. 
they, they really need to draw from some of the best practices that they're observing in Hess and Hess certainly brings some capability to the table around exploration and, and other things. <clears throat> Being in the Bakken, Chevron's not there, so that's new terrain. Um, so they'll be able to pull some learnings into their shale and tight asset class. And so it, it's gotta be a sort of a two-way exchange. I mean, Guyana obviously brings some new things to the table too, but um, you know, it's, it, it really is an exchange. And now Hess is gonna have the advantage of Chevron scale, which is tremendously valuable. So, um, you know, it, there, it's gotta be that sort of uh, that counterbalance. Great, more to come in your next episode. Yeah, more to come in future discussions. Renee, Riyadh, Nick, thank you very much for your wonderful insights on the IOCs and how transformation is making them very different companies. We hope you've enjoyed watching this episode as much as we enjoyed producing it. Please join us for future episodes of The Next Imperative. Our integrated oil company series will continue with episodes on production management and capital efficiency. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to The Next Imperative so you never miss a new episode. Also, visit our website at alvarezandmarsal.com to learn more and to connect with us.